0: You're listening to A Social Justice Podcast, hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by A Social Justice Coloring Book. Hello, this is A Social Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling. Today we're talking about communities programs. We'll get into what that means a little bit later. And I'm joined by Alex DeForge. Uh, Alex, can you introduce yourself, please?
1: Yeah. uh, So my name is Alex. I use they and them pronouns, and I work at community. I'm the programs manager now. Um, And I've been there for about two and a half, actually getting close to three years now, which is a wonderful thing, especially in a nonprofit. Um, So I've really seen things change and grow over time and been working to help better the lives of 2SLGBTQIA plus people.
0: Amazing. And thank you so much for joining today. I'm really excited for this discussion. And for full disclosure, I'm on the board of Community. You're a staff member for Community. So we're both going to be able to talk about this from slightly different perspectives, Mm -hmm. although I'm relatively new still. I've been on the board for about a year. So you're going to know a lot more than I am about what Community does. And and I'll be leaning heavily on you to to talk about uh, specifically the programs that Community offers and why they're important and Uh, To start with, what is community and what does community do?
1: Perfect opening question. Yeah, so community is BC's Queer, Trans, and Two-Spirit Resource Center, um, and we've been around for getting close to 35 years. Is my getting the math on that right? Maybe. I want to say it's even (laughs) longer. Maybe it's 45. I know that there's, I think it's 45 years now. Um, I think next year is the 45th year because somebody alerted me to that and I was like, oh no, oh no. Well, it's a weird
0: um, origin story because from my understanding, community and Uh, Vancouver Pride were sort of the same organization for a while, and then they split off into one. One is taking care of events, and then the other one is taking care of community services. Is that your understanding as well? Yeah, that
1: is my understanding. And that, like for a long time, it was just sort of uh, like held out of somebody's basement, essentially. Like that was, and and I think that's the story of a lot of both pride societies as well as uh, community service organizations that Mm -hmm. are doing like social services. Um, But I, I. When I see pride societies throughout BC, they do do a lot of social services themselves, which I think is wonderful because it dovetails really well with the work that we do. And there's always ways we can support that. Um, But it's also true of Vancouver. And I think people don't realize that. Um, So for a long time, a community was just called the center, um, which Mm -hmm. is like a piece of history that I think is important to think about when we talk about what community does. Um, because there was a long time where community wasn't able to do our work as openly as we are able to do it these days, where we sort of had to covertly go as the center. We've gone through a lot of different name changes, um, and we've landed on, you know, community, BC's Queer, Trans, and Two-Spirit Resource Center. Um, what that means, and I, I sort of changed my spiel on this every year, the way that I've been explaining it to people is that Um, because, you know, I guess I could just, and we probably will do some of this of like listing all the different programs and services that we offer. And that list just gets like obscenely long. It's just, there's so many things that we do at this point, um, that I tend to describe it as, um, ways that we support people at every stage of their life. And that can be, um supporting youth and supporting their caregivers, that can be supporting seniors, that can be supporting adults, that can be supporting like the service providers around all those people. So other service providers that aren't just us, whether they're counselors um, working in schools or whether they are social workers working in employment centers and trying to sort of make all those puzzle pieces fit together to make sure that the life journey of somebody from, you know, being a, a youth to being a senior is something where they're supported and seen and celebrated um, with their identity as someone that's 2SLGBTQIA+, um, and also at the intersections of their identity, which is something that I like to sort of draw out that we're not there to only support people um, around Sojis, so like their sexual uh, orientation and their gender identity, but to also think about how that is something that is part of a whole person and mm-hmm. how they have all these identities that are are part of that too and that's something that we want to serve at community as well,
0: right. And when you talk about all of these things that community offers, it sounds like it has to be a massive organization I mean, to make all of this happen, right? Yeah. So what are we talking about in terms of the size of community staff members? Um I don't know if you want to get into budget, but, you know, like I mean, is yeah. it a is it a really large organization? I
1: would say it, it depends on how you measure organizations. and it, it's funny. I was watching, Um, I was at a conference this weekend um, called With the Enchante Network, which are based out of Ottawa. And they sort of like help a lot of queer organizations and adjacent organizations network together. And they had divided up what they considered small organizations and large organizations, just sort of like a a black and white split for the purposes of like getting an understanding of the network. Mm -hmm. And I think, and we obviously fell into large according to them. And it was because they're like, if your budget is more than like I think the number was like 200,000K a year. And right. I was like, oh, that's so small. That's like four staff members at most, but probably three or two. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the nonprofit scheme of things, I'd say we're like medium-sized. This right. is, I think that usually we fall under, if you're thinking in, in terms of categories, we have at any given time somewhere between 12 and 16 staff members it definitely seems like we're bigger. And when I started community, I was like, how is it possible that there are all these programs? Some of which I'd access, some of which I'd I'd had friends that had accessed these programs. And I was like, how does this all happen? And a big answer to that is volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, unpaid labor. I'm also kind of a unionist on this, but but volunteers, as we know in the nonprofit world, make the world go round and, and make these things work. I mean. You're a board member. It's a volunteer position. Board members don't get paid.
0: Yeah. And um, also coming from Vancouver Pride, I spent six years on their board. That wouldn't happen without all the volunteers either. Oh,
1: yeah, exactly. And so for any given you know, event, program, right down to like admin work, our front desk, we have about – at any given time, 90 active volunteers that are doing all of these bits and pieces, which make it seem like we have this huge staff and it's actually, we have the small staff and these amazing passionate volunteers that help us do this work.
0: Right. And out of curiosity, because I've wondered this with uh, any organization that relies so heavily on volunteers, how do you decide what is the role of a volunteer and what's the role of a staff member? Like what deserves to be paid, what doesn't kind of...
1: It's a, it's a really good question because I, I I have like two hats for this. I have like my union hat, which is like all work deserves to be paid because we live in this capitalist society and people need to live. I have this other hat um, that says we definitely don't have the funding to do that. Yeah. The, the way that we sort of make the decisions is if the role um, has like responsibilities where it either has maybe like liability or accountability that crosses a, th- a certain threshold. I think that sort of makes its way into something that would be a paid role. So like if right. someone's if someone has to make decisions about safety, that should be paid. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to uh, somebody who's like showing up to support the work and doing the things and facilitating. Those are sometimes unpaid roles depending on what they look like or sometimes they're people get honorarias depending on what kinds of labor they're contributing but those are often what we put as like the volunteer roles that tend to have like a little bit less riding on them um or if like are we allowed to swear on this podcast go for it i was gonna say if like shit hits the fan you know like we don't rely on our volunteers to do the the work um mm-hmm. and i think that's a, the big difference of like
0: Making sure you're not putting them in in these uncomfortable positions.
1: Yeah, and putting them in harm's way. Right. Yeah, making sure that even if it's something that's a little bit lower level decision in the sense that, or like less high stakes, I'll say that, Mm -hmm. I'll put it, if it's like the kind of decision that would be made, but it could, you know, really affect um, even like an event, um, Mm -hmm. those kinds of things have to be done by staff members so that we're not saddling volunteers with the responsibility of, Right, I think I think board members are kind of the exception to that rule, where board members are making high stakes decisions all the time, and yeah, I mean, kind of
0: you you get into the conversation around working boards and governance boards because there's there's yeah. a whole other type of board that exists that we, we don't have at community where mm-hmm. the board does all the work because the organization can't afford to have staff. Yeah, and then you end up in this weird transitional period where you're trying to get your board from a working position to a governance position so that yeah. the staff can take over. Those responsibilities and those volunteer positions are just about sort of guiding the direction, but the staff are doing really all of the work.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that happens a lot, um, especially with, when... I think in in the nonprofit world, there's always that tension, and I think that oftentimes boards face that tension. And yeah. We
0: dealt with really that at right. Vancouver Pride for a while. I, I was a captain for Vancouver Pride before I became a board member. Then I became a board member, but I was still a captain because... Yes. We needed those roles to be filled, but it created this really uncomfortable position where on some days I'm what would essentially be the staff's boss, yeah. and then on other days the staff is trying to tell me what to do, and it puts them in a really uncomfortable position where they're going, I don't want to tell my boss what to do, yeah, um, because that's sort of how they're viewing it, and that that was the, sort of the impetus to get us to transition from right. being more of a working board to being more of a governance board, because we hit that wall of... we. This just isn't comfortable for staff, it's not working. How do we draw these lines? Exactly, Mm -hmm.
1: exactly. The other thing that I wanted to bring up about volunteers is I think that we also get volunteers, or sometimes a volunteer role is made that is more of, and I don't want to say this in like a, but it's like more of a a entry level position in the sense that our expectations of people's work experience in that area um, is a much lower threshold to hit. I think especially because there are so many people that are passionate about this work, even something that I think people might think would be an entry-level position at our organization, often the people competing for those roles have years and years and years of experience. So Mm -hmm. our volunteers sometimes come to us when they're passionate about the work, but they also want to gain experience in that area. So maybe they don't have any experience like facilitating youth groups, but They do have experience like doing all sorts of other work and they come to us and they start volunteering in part to fulfill this thing in them that wants to do some good in the world and also in part to get some experience doing something that they doing like a work like job that they're Mm -hmm. passionate about that gives them. The like a foot in the door, the ability to say to other organizations that they have that experience. And
0: right. And uh, you see that with pretty much any job application. It'll say, we require five years of experience in this industry. And you go, but I'm just out of school. How do I get that experience? Do do no it? one's going to hire me to get the experience, but I need the experience yeah. to get hired. And it's this catch-22. And I've, yeah, volunteering is a great way of getting that experience. And un- yeah. unfortunately, not everyone can afford to do that. No, but
1: I, yeah, I think it's like one of those really faulty systems where not yeah. everyone has access to being a volunteer because sometimes you have to like work certain jobs and there aren't those rules that you can do. And yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to come back to the safety aspect for a little bit yeah. because we've had some incidents at community where staff have been in unsafe environments and it's, all fine to say, you know, we don't want to put the volunteers in that position, but we really shouldn't be putting staff in unsafe positions either. With Vancouver Pride, when I would do uh, outreach trips, we'd go Mm -hmm. all around BC. We always made sure we had a buddy system. So you always had to have one other person with you, at least when you're going to different places, because if you do encounter a situation that might be unsafe, the theory is that you've got someone there that can help you out with that. Yeah. Uh, What is community doing to address Safety for staff and making sure that the staff are kept in a safe environment?
1: Yeah, great question. Because I I think safety is one of those really complicated things where, of course, we don't want to put staff in like risky situations Mm -hmm. or in situations where things can, unsafe things can happen. And there's the reality that it's impossible to completely protect staff from that, especially in the area that we work, which is doing a lot of service provision and outreach where we are bound by virtue of being visible or working with groups and sometimes working off-site, but even also working on-site, we're bound to encounter threats and we're bound to encounter situations where there are risks. So we, we do have a multi-step system in place now. You helped us sort of make a more robust system more recently um, I think something that might be important for listeners to know is that community was really, really lucky for like a couple of decades in, in recent memory where we weren't really encountering incidents. But with the rise of transphobia in particular, but transphobia and homophobia in political discourse, in the news, and then in the public and online, we started encountering more and more resistance to our work. Um, and so we have had our work protested before Um, especially offsite. We have now developed a more robust system where before we had a system where it's like, make sure you call your manager, that you're like thinking about safety, that you're, you know, making decisions that are right for you. And now we're like, oh, we need a, a a good system. And we need one where like somebody can fall back on it and there is sort of like a series of steps that we take to both prevent which is always the, the best thing to do and to also respond. So on the prevention side, a lot of it is doing risk assessments, being able to like have a a method by which we're able to look at either an event or a program, a, a plan or anything that we're doing a service that we provide and really assess like what are the kinds of risks that might appear and in pure risk management fashion. Do that calculation where we're thinking about the magnitude of possible harms and the probability that harms might come about, and then afterward assessing. Okay, here are all the risks that we can foresee, um, both ones that are very unlikely and ones that are, you know, quite probable. And then we have to make an assessment of like, is this thing worthwhile to go through with?
0: Kind of like a matrix that you yeah using to, to yeah that we out.
1: use a matrix, and then and then there's sort of like this you know, less subjective, I mean, all of it is kind of subjective, but there's a there's sort of a judgment that we have to come to at the end of doing a risk assessment, which is figuring out, like, is this still the right thing to go through with? The, the matrix also, like, lets us think risk by risk, you know, like, take stock of each one and think, are there mitigations that we can take? And so that's sort of step two is, what can we do about any given risk? So a really basic risk that workplaces think about all the time is, like, fire. You know, right. at any given, like, event or workplace you have, there is a risk of fires happening, if you know, on-site for all sorts of reasons. And so most organizations have already done this to some extent. Fires are fairly unlikely, but also really bad. Like, high magnitude of badness. And there's low. also a
0: history of fires being used to target queer people.
1: Yeah, that's actually very true. And that's true, like, in Vancouver and true across BC. Most places have sort of mitigations, right? On-site you have, like fire extinguishers and you Mm -hmm. have an exit plan and there's a, a muster point of where people meet and there's like different ways that leaders in the building think about getting people out and there are alarms that sound and there's like calls that sometimes automatically go out to fire stations if somebody pulls a fire alarm. And -hmm. so if you think of all of those as being mitigations, all those things reduce the risk of those harms coming to pass, even if a fire happens. Step two is trying to figure out what are the mitigations. And for us, a lot of it is much in the same way that you're talking about, like always making sure that there's at least one other staff member on site and or volunteer, um, making sure that we at all times, have at least two people in attendance, um, and that there's a point person at any off-site event, so that you know there's somebody in a partner organization, or somebody on site, or like maybe it's a manager at the community center that we're running a program out of. But there's someone that we can talk to and talk to quickly that mm-hmm. can help us problem solve and troubleshoot. Um, that we have phone numbers of and making sure that we sort of have a phone a phone tree system where if a manager isn't on site, which oftentimes there is now, but if a manager isn't on site, that there's a manager that's reachable at all times.
0: Right. And sometimes the work that community does requires putting yourself in situations that may be less safe than would otherwise be the case if you weren't putting yourself in that situation. And one of those would be helping out with these counter protests that Mm -hmm. keep happening um, or that have to keep happening because there are hateful individuals scheduling protests around the country, around the province, different municipalities at, trying to either get soji removed from schools or just target um, drag story time events, things like that. What is community's approach to dealing with those types of situations?
1: I, th- I think that this is something that we're starting to come to terms with. We're, like, we don't have a full response yet to this. And I
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that with, so I can tell you what's happening for the f- upcoming event, Um, Which
0: will be a past event when this podcast yeah. So when
1: when this podcast airs, um, it will be past September twentieth. And September twentieth is right now the plan for the largest anti-surgery protest that. I think across Canada that we are will have experienced in mm-hmm. a long time. Community decided that where we fall right now on the spectrum of, of like the kinds of support services we do is making sure that we continue with the support services that we already do and, and trying to figure out how to ensure that. So for us, that actually means closing our office for the day and everybody working from home so that you still have somebody to turn to and that they can turn to a, a worker who is also safe in a safe place. Right. Um, and that was a bit of a difficult decision to come to. I think that there was a time where it's like, well, it should be, you know, make sure that our office store is something that people can walk through. And if we can't guarantee that the office will be a safe place either, it doesn't make a lot of sense to put our staff in that kind of support situation because it's also not within their job description. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the work that they want to do or choose to do, and including the work that I might choose to do around the protest, doesn't fall under exactly the community umbrella. And we have to sort of think long-term, like, what are the goals? And the goals are doing things like continuing education um, and making sure that we're combating the misinformation and disinformation that's happening that's sort of, like, Fueling these protests Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that we're thinking about responses that are really about continuing to provide those services to the people that are most affected by these kinds of anti SOGI protests, which are queer people at the end of the day. Protecting your staff in a way where they can continue to provide those services is like our number one priority. And then the other thing that we are doing and that I'm doing as a program manager is like engaging with partner organizations. Um, and allied organizations. Like I, I was recently talking to um, to somebody from the BC Federation of Labor who was like, "Hey, and if you're at that protest and you like just need some like big burly guys in front of you," and I was like, "I might take you up on that." Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking about like how we um, actually like start talking to people that are are sometimes part of the community and sometimes are allies, and and mm-hmm. thinking about how we you know use that power.
0: Yeah. And I mean, on that note, it's kind of a tricky situation because you bring in the big burly guys, you have to really make sure that everyone is peaceful because you know that the other side is going to try to label you as antagonistic, as violent. And you have to be careful of that. And so much of the rhetoric is politically motivated. Yeah. And what I think is interesting is that we both have political backgrounds and we've wound up involved with community in some way. And I'm curious to know what your journey of Getting involved was i think you started out in a constituency office did you
1: yeah yeah i did so i started out as what they call like a a constituency assistant Mm -hmm. um which is this like funny mix of like some frontline work like you're often doing housing casework and medical casework for people like trying to get them you know access to to a combination of like medicaid and care and also like trying to make sure that the drugs are on or covered and making sure that like people are who are trying to get into BC housing understand what the application looks like and how to walk them through it. And so there are all these these frontline things that you're doing as a constituency assistant. But then there are all these things that you're doing in the background, which is like answering emails and booking meetings for a politician for an MLA in this case. and I, I was working for an NDP MLA who's actually like a wonderful person to work with. I think it's it's a uh, rare to get to work with politicians that are like re- extremely genuine.
0: Can we say their yeah,
1: name? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think this is be a problem. So it was Spencer Chandra Herbert. Right. Um, I, the reason yeah. I was
0: hoping that you were going to say the name is because who's, he's one of the most queer centric exactly. people, he's, right? He's yeah.
1: been somebody, I mean, he's someone that openly identifies as gay, um, has a wonderful husband who's actually has worked for community in the past. I've like, taken training
0: from his husband. Oh, amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, has a wonderful family and Spencer has been um, doing the, the work of, of doing a lot of the activism both around like queerness but also around trans topics and like trans rights when people wouldn't touch it.
0: Well, I started uh, getting to know Spencer in 2017, actually, maybe even earlier than ah, that, because yeah. it was when we were pushing to have gender identity and gender expression added to the BC Human Rights Code, yeah. and he was instrumental in, in getting that to happen.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that Spencer's really good at like pushing the envelope, even when the party doesn't and isn't ready to hear it. And I and so it was wonderful working for him. Other than that, like I'd worked voter contact and campaigns for the BC NDP. I sort of like really... Got involved with the BCNDP when I was in my like university years and college years mm-hmm. and my path into working in nonprofits was sort of this wayward one where I think that I sort of burnt out on politics which I think a lot of people do I think <laughs> it it's happens e- it's easy to do where like I think that a lot of us sometimes especially if we're marginalized people mm-hmm. like you and I it's easy to get disenfranchised, to, like, sort of feel like, oh, like, this is the the best party out of the ones available to me, but I always felt like I was, like, sitting more left than the party was. Yeah. Which I think most people in the party are that way, but that's...
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I ended up... Switching over to the BC Greens because at the time they just seemed like they were more left wing than Yeah, than you're the NDP like, give were. me
1: something more left wing. I know. And I'm also having I'm alre- I'm having that internal struggle right now. I'm <laughs> like, the the BC NDP aren't doing the things that I want them to be doing. They were kind of leaning center. They're like not hitting any goals now. And with the exception of like a few politicians, which Spencer continues to be one of them, I I I found myself sort of like trying to figure out what to do now with mm-hmm. my my ethics and my values and my beliefs and the things that I wanted to get done, which used to sit in this world of being like, we have to get systems to change. And what I need to do is like infiltrate the system and get things to change from the inside. And I started to become a believer of like, you know, I I started out in various like grassroots organizations and probably the kinds of differences I wanted to make, which often involve radical change is probably easier to implement from a nonprofit, and right. you probably relate to this really well which is like it, when you're in a nonprofit, you can often much more easily push through the kinds of like programs and the things you want to do and like the agenda that you have um
0: yeah well you know, i also find that um i running for the bc greens where i live in coquitlam is not really a winning recipe it's, it's an ndp one. stronghold the greens generally don't get a lot of support out there But what I find is that I'm doing all sorts of advocacy work. And whenever I run in one of these campaigns, not only do I get to build the support for the party that I think should be in power, but also I get to push all sorts of messaging around issues that I care about. Mm -hmm. And people can listen to them because I get this platform to talk about them. So I find that there's this really nice combination between nonprofit work, political work. You obviously have to be very careful that you're not mixing the two and becoming partisan in your nonprofit work but at the same time I think that they sort of go hand in hand in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah and I think that ultimately you can't do one without the other Mm -hmm. like I I think that we absolutely need systems to change and sometimes in order to do that we need to like change social perspectives we need to like win the hearts and minds of the people and we need politicians backing the like the good things that we're doing. And we actually can't do one without the other.
0: Yeah. And um, we've met yeah. each other at the BC legislature before. Because yeah, exactly. you come in with community, I come in with a, a trans advocacy organization. Yeah. I work with called Tivine. And we we see each other and we're not there for partisan reasons. No. But you just end up there because that's sort of the the culmination of politics and exactly. non nonprofit work coming together.
1: Yeah. And I noticed that like the politicians that genuinely care about the work that you and I do will always show up for us and they don't really care like who we vote for and what we run for. I mean they of course they care, but when it comes to the actual issues, the politicians who really hold those values will always show up and they'll show up at the VC legislature for those events. They'll show up to like those meetings. They'll make sure that the letters about those issues get to the right people. They'll be like knocking on doors of their colleagues to make sure that things get done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really believe in movements that, that think about all levels of power, and some of that is gonna be government power and legislative power and laws and policies, and some of that is gonna be power of the people on the ground, and some of that is gonna be power of like social services, and, and all of the things that happen in between those things are
0: yeah. essential. And coming back to nonprofits and the work that community is doing, generally when you're starting a nonprofit, you're trying to fill a gap. Thinking about the landscape of BC before community existed, or if community were to cease to exist, what is that gap that community is trying to fill there?
1: Oh, that's a good question. It's a hard one to answer. I mean, I can tell you the gaps that I see now. The the way that community started, I think it was because of a social service gap. Mm-hmm. But we really started for a long time, just serving like gay people, gay and lesbian people, and it was reflected in our name for a long time. I think that as time progressed, we started to see that there are other identities that we weren't serving, including transgender identities, um, but also two-spirit identities, um, and thinking about how we name that. But I think that the the gap really is that queer people are living out in the world, and we're just not living with access to the same Public and private lives that straight and cisgender people get access to, and I sort of see these responses all the time on the internet and on like news articles. Don't read the comment section of the news article. Yeah,
0: good, I'm good. Sure you, I'm
1: sure you know that, but oh god, I always get sucked into it. Where people are like, "We have human rights." Like I don't know why people are up in arms about these things. I don't know why they're talking to kids about it. I don't know why this and that. When the reality is that queer people don't have the same they're they're not allowed to talk about their relationships in a lot of public spaces. They're told in workspaces that You know it's unprofessional to talk about queerness when straight people don't have to worry about talking about like their husbands and wives and families in Mm -hmm. the same way that queer people do we don't have access to the same safety we face all kinds of discrimination both when like trying to access housing or trying to access jobs or just like in regular life of like getting on and off a bus and -hmm. so there are all these ways in which queer people we're not being served in the same way by a society that's supposed to be equitable and is supposed to be valuing of diversity and and supposed to value inclusivity. And so that space that we fill is really any sort of space where we think that a service or a program might be able to prop up people um, or might be able to sort of like help them move through the world better. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that comes from the side of like, propping up individuals and communities. And sometimes it comes from the systems change side of like trying to educate an employer about how to make their workspace more trans inclusive. But yeah, any sort of gap that we can find that will bring us like that bit closer to a more equitable society, that's the gap we're trying to fill.
0: Right. And I mean, I operate mostly in the trans advocacy realm. So a lot of times when people approach me and they say, I'm being discriminated against in, in the workplace, mm. right? I, am either not able to find work. How, how do I deal with that? Or more often than not, it's, I just don't have money to access the care that I need, medical care, counseling. Absolutely. So one of the big ones, um, I think that community fills in terms of a gap in our communities is that piece around counseling. Yeah. Right. If you're dealing with, a year income. You don't have money to spend $200 on a counselor. So being able to go to community and say, I I need help and have counselors there, that's a huge one for for the people in my network.
1: It's absolutely like, it's a huge thing. And I have many friends who have accessed our counseling program because let's face it, counseling ought to be in my ideal world, we wouldn't have to have a counseling program because counseling should be something that's covered mm-hmm. under our healthcare system. It is basic healthcare. That um, and dental. That and dental. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> just I would just like to have some some access to free counseling and dental. Wouldn't that be nice? Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, because the world's a hard one to live in, especially for queer, but especially for trans people, and especially these days. The incidence of depression and anxiety is exceptionally high. Like it's the majority of queer people are living with anxiety and depression.
0: And to be clear, not because they're queer. And not
1: because they're (laughs) queer, right? Yeah, not because they're queer. It's because Mm -hmm. they're living in a world that rejects them, that has prejudice against them, a world where like they have families reject them. Yeah, because it's like hard to move through the world and hard to like express one's gender and to talk about sexual orientation. People are already living with mental health issues because mm-hmm. of the ways that the world is like oppressive and then they're trying to like function in this world that's already hard to function and it's like hard for the average person to function in, in this world like the average person needs mental health care i think
0: everyone should go to counseling oh to be god yeah.
1: yeah yeah i'm like always oh, trying to tell my mother she's not going to listen to this podcast you <laughs> can Yeah, my my mom does
0: it. My dad's the one Uh, (laughs) who's "Um, resistant. uh,
1: Yeah, I'm always like, everyone should go to a counselor. So we provide free counseling as well as low-cost counseling. Um, I wish we could just provide everyone with free counseling, and that's the ideal that I'm trying to work toward Mm -hmm. by scrapping together grants. But in the meantime, we also provide low-cost counseling.
0: Which is kind of funny that you're going – Typically, to the government to get grants, yeah, for counseling when the government should just be funding it through our healthcare system. Oh, instead. absolutely.
1: I I often sort of say that working in a nonprofit is this like funny thing where my ideal world is that a lot of the time a lot of our work wouldn't really need to exist, and the mm-hmm. reason that exists is because there's like a bunch of gaps in the foundation. Um, so counseling is a way that we we help people who and and we are able to provide. For people in the community that need that healthcare, that need something that is with like a trained professional who's able to help them learn some ways of coping and also help them talk through like the identities that they hold. And I think our counseling program is especially unique because not only are we able to match people to counselors based on identities, but also based on sometimes like things like cultural identities too. So um I don't I don't access our own counseling program because that would be Unethical, but mm-hmm. I know that for me, I see a trans counselor who is also Asian, and um I'm Asian and, and transgender. And so for me, that is immensely helpful because I get to start out a counseling session without having to like explain the background things of the emotions that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of this like basic level of understanding through shared identity, and so that's something that community does that is a little bit revolutionary. Oftentimes people Pick counselors, you know, sort of like based on probably just like bios. Try to think of what I did before. Really thinking about it, I just went
0: to a whole bunch until finally until something clicked. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and and so sort of there's that like. trying to figure out who might be a good counselor and trying to and and also trying to skip that process of like possibly going through some pretty painful introductory counseling sessions Mm -hmm. when somebody just does not understand your identity which might be a big thing that you have to talk through
0: and if you're paying for it i find sometimes it feels like you're just throwing your money away because you go to these sessions you pay a whole bunch of money for them and then it doesn't work out and you're like well and i have to start over with someone else yeah
1: yeah and then you have to like go tell like all your trauma to someone else. And Mm -hmm. so we try to to make the system a little bit different by trying to pair people's identities as well as pair people's needs to the counselors that we have um, while also providing that, that sort of guarantee that the counselors that are working with us have been well vetted, that there's like somebody talking to those counselors about different identities that we're like really thinking collectively about social change as well as the things that are affecting the folks that Come seeker services and also the counselors are able to know what to refer people to if their clients likely have other needs that they need fulfilled right yeah but I also think that the other thing that pairs really well with those counseling services are the peer groups and and I think that sometimes it's thought of as just like social groups when peer groups often, at a place like communities serve as informal mental health care and the way that Mm -hmm. communities care for each other. um,
0: And that's hugely necessary because that used to be something that could be accessed through Catherine White Home and Wellness Center. Yeah. Their services really have been diminished. So having that at community is something that is really necessary, especially now. It's the
1: place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, I know that Our transgender peer groups are absolutely like bursting at the seams. We have a group called Autistic Queer Peers, which is also bursting at the seams. Um, We have a peer group for parents of trans kids, Mm -hmm. which is like started, I want to say only one year ago and has been rapidly growing because parents who want to support their kids, they always don't know how. And so Mm -hmm. being able to talk to other parents who are going through similar struggles allows them to figure out what are like the resources and information that they want to have on hand and they want to provide others with
0: and how does yeah. that differ from uh PFLAG or do you work sort of in conjunction or is there just so many people seeking I think these types of
1: just so many people yeah i think there's just so many people seeking these services i think that and this is something that i i think maybe depends on like the PFLAG chapter but i think that we have a much more we have many more nuances of what our peer groups look like and the, the sort of intersections of identities and the specific things that the peer groups do mm-hmm. than P Flag usually does. I know that they've been a little bit more proactive in recent years about making sure that they have like BIPOC peer groups for youth and right. things like that. But for, for us, that was always baked into the system. So the, the way that a peer group starts is a minimum of two people say that they want a peer group themed around something. So uh an example is like there's a Spanish speaking peer group that we have of like uh Latinas, Latinas and Latidexes of, of peoples, Latines, I guess is the other word, who want to come together and have a, a shared lived experiences of also having that identity. Mm-hmm. Um and so what we have is minimum of two people who want to facilitate and then we just launch it. We we start advertising and we and it never fails as a model because it's sort of like if you build it, people will come. Um, So it it really starts in like a true grassroots way where it starts with like sometimes at first one person and then two people and then three people saying like, we want this thing to exist. And then it blossoms from there. And we just facilitate them having the space, whether that's like literal physical space or that's like mental space and resources and online space and resources yeah and
0: it feels like a lot of times the people that are seeking the services are also people that are interested in maybe volunteering and helping to create that space for other people too yeah
1: absolutely and i think that's a way in which people also find like one of the one of the things i did before i became a manager at community is i i used to be like their main research and data social impact researcher so i was like one of the titles, one of the many titles I held. Um, And one of the things I found was that people were reporting that by participating in programs where they felt like they were relied upon and that they were providing support for others, that actually gave them meaning and motivation um, in ways that were actually good for their mental health. And so people seeking services might also be the same people that are the right volunteers for us mm-hmm. for so many reasons. And one is that it it serves people in a real way to also volunteer, um, where they get to be part of community, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-T-Y. They get to be part of community as well, but they get yeah. to be valued. And it's also a space where we really, really valued lived experience. And we value lived experience the same way that I think other organizations value like work experience and volunteer experience. Because there's like nothing like lived experience that can teach somebody how to help others. Like there's nothing like struggling through a system yourself that will help you help others. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of one of my mottos is be the person that I needed when I was younger. Uh, yeah. And I feel like that's what community is. That's why I wanted to become a board member and, and help out with community is that it was an organization. It is an organization that's doing exactly what I believe I should also be doing
1: yeah exactly and i and i think that's like a huge thing where like being that mentor can oftentimes make people see also the the value of their own lives where mm-hmm. i think for many queer people um, and especially trans people these days where you like wake up and you read the news and you're like oh shit people fucking hate me right now having a space where you see that you make positive difference in people's lives where like you can see that youth and seniors and adults are like getting something out of this and that I and that like we're able to communicate the importance of their lives too is also something that keeps many of us going and mm-hmm. and helps us overcome that hate and those like bad mental health days and things like that. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Now, I don't want to leave out anything that community does. So I went on the website and mm. uh, I see that community offers youth services, seniors and older, adult services, employment support services, counseling, and a trans ID clinic. Do sure. you think that accurately encompasses all of the programs community is doing? Are there things that that leaves mm, out?
1: It definitely leaves out. So, I mean, does it, I guess the question is, are there like really obvious glaring things that leaves out? No, I mean, I think that that covers it, but...
0: From like a broad perspective. From the that, bro-
1: broad perspective. Mm-hmm. Like if I was like trying to list things to the government being like, here's the, like, if you're a person that walks through our doors, here are going to be like the most obvious categories with which you can access stuff. Actually, the one thing that is sort of left out, because it's not strictly a program, but I do think of it as something that helps people are events where we... And some of those are general events. Some of those are specific to programs, as you know. Right. But I think um being able to hold space which is not which is something that like many organizations do but but doing it in our own way of holding space for communities to celebrate is also a thing that we do so yeah,
0: yeah. and i mean community has some of the most incredible fundraising events i've ever come across um from the idaho yeah. breakfast that happens every year which is just I, Every, almost every queer person in Vancouver knows about it. Totally. There was a taste of pride that recently happened, which yeah. I got to attend for the first, I mean, it's it the first year we've like, done it. First year
1: we've done it. And, done it, and it was, was like, incredible. it was so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved that. It's yeah.
0: It's sort of unfortunate in some ways, because there is a high price point to it. And not everyone yeah. can afford to attend. But I mean, that's how you but get th- the money for community as well to help those people.
1: Yeah, it's like one of the ways that we fundraise. And it's a way for as well, I think I think sometimes the people that we see at those fundraising events are people that want to contribute, and money is sometimes the best way to do it. It's like mm-hmm. volunteering is maybe not for them, or it's not in the real house, or they don't have the time, but maybe they do have the funding. And I also think that there's like a different community that gathers around those events that wouldn't be normally accessing our our other events that are lower barrier and and so Mm -hmm. there's like a a sort of a different aspect to those
0: yeah it's definitely a different crowd yeah Um, it's a different
1: crowd I'm always I I don't know about you but whenever I'm there I'm like oh god did I dress up enough for this like
0: (laughs) every time I'm not the type of person to dress up typically yeah yeah, that's always going through my head (laughs) yeah what services are youth specifically looking for, typically when they come to community counseling mm-hmm. aside, because we've sort of touched on that and that's a big one.
1: They're often seeking our youth group, which has like drop-in services, both online and in person. Um And so they're often seeking co- like community. Mm-hmm. I I often talk to people about how like we get youth that come to our space and they've never even met, like they sometimes they haven't even met like another trans person before. Mm-hmm and they're surrounded by adults that are trans. I mean, we do have staff that aren't transgender. We have some cisgender staff. But I think the majority of our staff are transgender and, and gender diverse. Um, Such an interesting, it's really interesting contrast
0: to most organizations. Oh gosh, sorry. it's like the
1: only time in my life I've gone to work <laughs> and been surrounded by other trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so youth come through our doors, they suddenly get to meet other trans people. And our programs, our youth drop-in programs, are, have a majority of trans youth there right. now, and so they also suddenly get to meet other youth going through these experiences. They, they also have a majority of BIPOC youth, and so they get to meet youth that are like are people of color that are are racialized, that are black, that are indigenous, that like that hold these other identities. When the media often portrays transness and queerness as being something that's solely white. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that aspect of the way that we do our programming is really important. So I got on a tangent. So we do that for youth. We also provide one-on-one services, but also youth have been appearing more and more in other areas of our work, which I think is interesting and also really exciting. So I do see youth accessing our trans ID clinic, Mm. um, which has to happen with the consent of their parents. Um, You can't change. So these
0: are like People who are under 18 yeah, actually, and they're, they're wanting is, to change their ID. You do have ID. people
1: over 18 who change their ID as well that, that access our trans ID clinic. And youth that are minors where their parents are trying to figure out ways of supporting their youth. And that's like a really easy way of supporting youth, which is like having identification that says that we see you for the identity that you hold. Mm-hmm. And also identification where like if you're in a school system, you're going to be registered by like legal names and gender markers on your ID, oftentimes, you like go to your dentist and it's registered, you go to do blood work. It's like those markers appear and they follow you when you like go to a gym, when you go to a summer camp. And so for a youth being able to change those, the gender marker and change a name to something that fits an identity, can make an enormous difference because that skips one large barrier that youth are going to face time and time and time again.
0: Yeah, and I was just actually talking to a parent uh, of a trans child who their teacher, I guess, is transphobic and just started using the dead names of all of the trans people that were in the school. They would assign seating based on dead names and was making these students feel incredibly uncomfortable. and, And it's not what teachers in that district are supposed to be doing there no. it's not like I mean, that's endorsed by the, the right. school district it's not they're like just,
1: new brunswick or like saskatchewan where they're like we're going we're coming down on you if you're a teacher right it's like they're just in a school di- it's just a transphobic person
0: it's yeah it's just one individual who is oh. pushing their own agenda i suppose but and it shouldn't be that way but you never know if someone like that is going to become your teacher yeah, and when you have that name on file it's always going to be a potential it's risk it's
1: always going to be a risk and I th- and i think it's like a risk that follows you in so many systems like if you get pulled over for a ticket but you've been pulled over for a ticket before your dead name shows up there's like all sorts of things where like if we are thinking proactively about how to make use lives easier and thinking about how to support them it's such like a low barrier easy thing to do to make sure that they're identified correctly and to use a name that feels good to them. Mm-hmm. Like, what an easy thing, you know? If only things were that easy all the time. Yeah. yeah. So that's something where we see youth accessing that and, and we see even minors sometimes accessing it with the support of their parents, which is always huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not easy for parents to go through, but I, when parents are doing it, I can tell that what they want is the best for their youth.
0: Right. And just for any of our listeners who are maybe thinking, well, why is it that, you know, they need to go to community to find community? I think one of the important things to remember is if you make up 1% of the population and you're in a school of a thousand people, you only have ten people in that school that you can really relate to.
1: How do you find those people?
0: Right. Whereas other students in that school, they have the entire population of the school that they can relate to. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's also like, not only how do you find those people, but like how do you find the space to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. right? Like, maybe you even know in your school who is like another trans person another BIPOC person that's queer. Like, maybe you know or you have a guess, but... It's hard to ask. It's hard to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Maybe there aren't many safe spaces to have that conversation in. And so having a physical space or an online space that you can show up to as a youth and be like, oh, all these youth here are queer. And everyone's introducing themselves with names and pronouns. And people mm-hmm. are talking openly about gender expression. And they're they're talking about the things that affect their lives. And, and suddenly these conversations aren't so fraught with like taboo, you really see like the difference in youth. It's like a night and day change where suddenly they're able to talk about the things that they are feeling that are affecting them.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you might think, well, some schools have GSAs. Is that a possibility? And and sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And other times you hear these stories of schools that have policies of telling parents whenever a child... Joins a GSA, Which, and so you, you're not necessarily going to feel comfortable doing that if you yeah. don't have accepting parents or your parents don't know. Or.
1: Exactly, exactly. Like I, I, especially with some of the policies that are coming down the line in other provinces, I wouldn't be surprised to see them show up here. And so, holding that space at community that really thinks about what safety looks like for those youth, and that often means when we have youth come in, we, we ask for a name of like a safe adult, but it, mm-hmm. it isn't always their parent because sometimes their family home isn't safe. Or sometimes it's like a social worker that they work with because maybe they're a displaced youth. Mm-hmm. But we're really thinking about how we support their safety in ways that think about their identity. And the final thing is our BBB program, which I, it's possible that we'll change the name to be a bit more um, inclusive because we've been providing more services. So we, it's our, we call it the BBB program because it used to be binders, bras, and breast forms. Mm -hmm. We're also expanding it to now various kinds of bottom wear and trans tape, but it's it's basically any sort of garment or something that somebody can use that is non-invasive that helps them have a gender expression that aligns with their gender identity, Mm -hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. That might be like a trans woman accessing breast forms and a bra, Um, And it might be a non-binary youth accessing a binder because they would feel better in their own skin and their own body if they had a binder. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big thing that people access. And it's probably the one that is most widespread across BC.
0: Right. And... As far as trying to accommodate youth's needs, when I was in school, the experience of being trans or being queer in in some way was very different than it would be today. It's very different than it would have been twenty years before I was in school. So, is it a challenge to try to keep up with the needs of youth?
1: Yeah, this is a little bit of a challenge, in that like the landscape is always changing. Like there there are times that I'm having conversations with youth, and I can tell that they're like, Alex, you are. Old, like they—they're like, the, like some of these things that you grew up with as a youth are not the things that we're growing up with as like now. So some of it is because like identities and language changes, which mm-hmm. is actually I, I think a really good thing. um I love when we have new words to describe things because it's like new words to describe human experience, and some of it is because they're emerging needs where. Um, I would say that when I was a youth, we weren't thinking about intersectional identity. I grew up in, like, the 90s and the aughts, Um, and, like, I don't know if it's that I didn't know the term or we weren't really thinking about it or, like, we weren't talking about it in high school, and nowadays, like, I, I was talking to, like, a grade five, six split last year and they already knew the term. I was like, I, I was doing my usual spiel and I started to explain intersectionality. And one of the teachers said like, you'll remember intersectionality is a term we talked about earlier in the year. And I was like, <laughs> wow. Because it's not a complex term to be thinking about the intersections of identities that we hold. And youth actually inherently understand it and makes sense to them. But I think that like youth, both are sometimes dealing with new issues because we have words for it. Mm -hmm. And they're also dealing with emerging issues because politics are changing. And sometimes it's for the better. Like there are many ways in which we've made progress since I was a youth. And sometimes it's for the worse, like this last year. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think back to my high school experience, we didn't talk about being trans. If we had, I probably would have figured out that I was trans a long time. Yeah. Or a lot earlier. Uh, But it was a big deal that we had a gay person come into our school and talk mm. about the stereotypes that they experienced as a gay person and now trans is being talked about in schools that that experience is being talked about so now the issue isn't so much it's not being talked about it's that now some guy with a billboard is standing outside outside saying gender ideology shouldn't be discussed yeah
1: yeah it's like now the the sort of like counter movement or like the anti-soju protests that are happening that Mm -hmm. that really affects people's mental health like i see it in our youth where like when our youth are used as political pawns They feel it. They are Mm -hmm. smart enough to know. I I know that we're using the term youth, but like, let me remind people and, and you can think back to, like for our listeners, you can think back to what it was like when you were 13, 14, 15, 16. Like you already have a good sense of self and you have a good sense of what the labels that people are using for you are. And you have a good sense about what social norms are. And so it really affects people that like some guy is on like a street corner with a sign saying that you're going to hell and that we shouldn't talk about it in schools and that like the the people who are talking about these things are groomers when like any other identity, we actually do have to talk about like social identities for people to make sense of themselves, for people Mm -hmm. to be able to locate themselves in society, for people to understand the ways They have shared experiences with people and the ways in which they're different, because otherwise you're just sort of drifting through, confused about what's happening, both within like yourself and your own feelings, and also confused about the way that people are treating you. Without language to do that and without having those conversations in schools, what are we doing? It's supposed to be an educational space where people are supposed to encounter ideas that help them move through society.
0: Right. and. On the other end of the spectrum, what is it that seniors are coming to community for?
1: Um, A whole mix of things. A lot of the time it's because seniors are oftentimes more isolated. And we know this of like seniors no matter who they are right like this is just a general fact about being a senior that seniors tend to experience more isolation which affects their mental health and their access to resources and also affects their physical health like it sort of affects them across the board Mm -hmm. if you are a queer senior the chances that you're socially isolated double and sometimes triple depending on where you live in bc and that's because there are these added things of like maybe your family has long rejected you Mm -hmm. and so the the sorts of social tethers that a lot of seniors rely on maybe aren't there for our queer seniors and so and maybe they've lost people of their generation and so people that used to really rely on community care also sometimes need community still and again mm-hmm. um so people come to us to find that community as well we also have seniors that find us because they're coming out for the first time and and that's actually huge we um, the number of transgender seniors we have who've sought us out um, and who are part of our programs has more than tripled in the last year alone. Amazing. And It's never and too late. It's never too late. And it's because of having these conversations where we're now talking about gender and seniors who are sometimes in their 60s are saying like, oh my God, I realize now that those feelings that I had about my gender, those ways in which I felt like it didn't fit in, there's like... This is something that I can name, and it's it's actually this thing about my gender identity where everyone all my life has assumed I was one thing, and I actually feel like something else. Mm-hmm. And so we have seniors that come to us to to figure some of that out, to talk to people about it, to access counseling, um, and to also talk to other queer seniors who will care about them and accept their identity and believe them. Yeah,
0: Right. And I, I mean, I don't know what your age is, but as someone who is... Um... Thirty-two, almost thirty three. Okay, so we're right around the same <laughs> there age. We go, yeah. You think about the differences between how kids today are are experiencing the world in, in their schools and the education that they're receiving around queer issues and the way that we experience the world, um yeah. just you know, twenty years prior perhaps. Yeah. And, you know, amplify that by I don't know how many times to try mm-hmm. to understand what a, a senior's perspective Absolutely. might have been like, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're like you go through All these times where, like, we didn't have language. So similar to what you were saying, we're like, you didn't know that being trans was a thing. I I got really lucky in that I have quite progressive parents and and I have queer parents, actually. So I, I was taught that transness was a thing, but I didn't know that... Being non binary, which is something, which is what I identify as. I didn't know that that was an identity I could hold. And neither did my parents, to their credit. It wasn't that they were like withholding information. They told me like trans women existed, trans men existed.
0: This is the same for my parents. They're very progressive, but they didn't know what trans was either. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. They just, they had no idea that there was this like other thing that somebody might be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't either. and, And my school system didn't talk about it. So, you know, my parents did the best they could which they did a pretty good job. But if you think back to like 20, 30, 40 years ago when we really didn't have language or where these conversations weren't being had or where queer communities were a lot more segregated. Or it was
0: even criminal to be gay.
1: Yeah, it was criminal to be gay. Like the ways in which it's been criminalized over the decades and at times where it wasn't criminalized, it was medicalized where... Mm -hmm. Where like maybe at best it's not criminal, but people think that you're insane, right? Right, like that people or you're think a predator of some kind. Yeah, like Which, people I mean, think. St- we still they get they that. Still think at that. Is- I know the, the irony is that that's resurging as the conversation and the debate. But like the difficulty of overcoming that, as well as overcoming the hetero and cisgender norms, is immense. I cannot imagine what it was like, and so of course seniors have dealt with that their entire lives. Even ones that were out, did like, have dealt with it their entire lives. And so many of seniors who are, like, coming out for the first time, they're both, like, the strongest people that I know and also sometimes the people that are really in need of services because they have lived a life of maybe not knowing or maybe they knew and they lived a life in the closet and, like, they're figuring it out. And there's so much that um, I think our generation has to learn from them as well about, like, how to be resilient through hard times, yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And a really exciting change within community is is something that I'm involved in uh, in our new building subcommittee is a new building that's coming. We're we're going to have a new space, much larger space, um, a more functional space. Can you talk about what that means for community and maybe what it's going to change in terms of what the organization is able to offer the community?
1: Yeah, this is a this is a great question because this is something I think about all the time because I have to try and help programs find space. So we have outgrown our space, which is a great problem to have to outgrow a space where like, we have so many staff and so many programs that are thriving that we actually need a new space. And because our space is the literal same first office that, we started out in it's like that exact same space it's completely inaccessible so anyone that's been to our offices you'll know what i'm talking about first of all it's hard to find which was somewhat on purpose
0: i discovered that when i was dropping off some newspapers like, a little the while ago a,
1: yeah i think right now we don't even have like a front like like number which is very confusing for fedex or like it doesn't. It doesn't staples. even
0: tend you to the right spot in your GPS. Oh either. yeah,
1: like you should. You should see me trying to like call a cab. <laughs> so, yeah. So we started out in a pretty hidden spot with, mm-hmm. with the name the center. And in fact, we still have this like lovely stained glass window that says the center. So it's inaccessible in the sense that it's difficult to find, and physically inaccessible in the sense that we have twenty six steps up to the offices. We're on, we're a second floor office, mm-hmm. and you know, that serves us in some ways of like not being street level means that it, it affords us a little bit of safety. But also we have no way for anyone with mobility issues or anyone with like a mobility aid, like a wheelchair or a walker to like get up the stairs. Mm. And we even like tried to figure out how, like if we could infu- like install a lift. And at one point we were all ready to do it. And we like called in a second opinion and The and the construction person was like, I... You can't, the stairwell won't support a lift. Like, are you kidding me? And we're like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Because it's like these narrow stairs. And then our hallways are these narrow things. The space that we're in is lovely in so many ways because it has, it's like rich with this history. There's like something charming about being in like a nonprofit with the walls kind of crumbling and windows that don't fully window and like doors Mm -hmm. that don't really there's like a door where in order to like actually shut it we have to lock it and there's like other doors that won't shut because if like when wood expands in the summer you like you know it's like got that classic old timey office feel people once told me that the space feels like a friendly gay haunted house with like friendly ghosts and and Having a new building means that we can finally look forward to having more space, more physical space and having accessible space. Um, So we'll have two floors and an elevator so that people can actually get up and down some things. Um,
0: And and even the opportunity to do smudging inside of the building. Yeah. Um, Not as widespread as we had hoped because of some complications. Some complications um, to do with, like venting and things. There's so much thought being put into uh making sure that it is approached through an intersectional lens. You talked about yeah. intersectionality earlier. Um we've got a whole indigiqueering process happening. Absolutely. It's just really exciting. I I'm work in the construction industry. Mm-hmm. Um I, I run a construction company. So I know sort of what's involved in doing these big renovations or new builds yeah. and i've never seen anything like this before
1: yeah i think it's really exciting um i think the the term that i hear used and I, you can tell that i don't have any experience in construction <laughs> building things other than building programs but like it's a purpose-built building so mm-hmm. it's being built with the mind that like we are the people that they're building it for and so that allows us to build in these aspects that that foster inclusivity i think for a long time and this is something i i love being really candid about because it it tells us about change and growth. For a long time, we said we included two spirit people, but we didn't have anyone two spirit on our staff. And so we included two spirit people by name, mm-hmm. which is not enough. Like, we definitely had two spirit people accessing our resources but it wasn't representative of the two-spirit people that we know need our services being able to build in like both by virtue of having staff members that serve that are indigenous and and doing it that way but also building a space that is also inviting of indigenous people that says like this is the space that you belong into Um, i once heard an indigenous artist who's a a two-spirit artist say that sometimes walking around Vancouver, he feels like a stranger on his own land. Like he, mm-hmm. he's walking through like the West End and he feels like a stranger on And like he doesn't belong on the land that's like his, ancestrally his.
0: Right. It's such a sad experience.
1: And I think about that a lot when I think about our new building. I mean, I think about that a lot, but I think about that when I think about our new building, about trying to build a building where it feels like it belongs to Indigenous people too, that they get first say on some things, Mm -hmm. which is not something that's often afforded to them unless it's like an Indigenous organization. And thinking about what it means to be on Indigenous land doing this work, the work that we owe to them or that and that i owe to them as a settler in this space to start prioritizing their needs and also knowing that the ways in which we prioritize their needs will often be good for us too i think that there's a way in which the the things that they've come to the table with is saying like we want indigenous art we want smudging for ceremony to be something that's available. All these things actually serve everyone and not just Mm -hmm. Indigenous folks. And so I think that there's also this real beauty to the way that inclusiveness happens when we're thinking proactively, because oftentimes the steps help everyone.
0: I think it's also really interesting how neurodiversity is being incorporated into the design as well. Uh, You would think with an organization that focuses on queer issues, you would have bright colors everywhere, but that's Mm -hmm. not something that is going to be particularly welcoming for a lot of neurodiverse people. So absolutely. we've had conversations about how to mute colors, how to make sure that you can see that this is a queer space without making it uncomfortable for for other people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I think that when we think about queerness, we think about the rainbow. And when you think about when people are actually seeking services, like you might not want to always work in a room that is like rainbow colored. There's this office. I mean, the office is still there, but we repainted. Um, but for a long time, we hadn't repainted it. And it was, God, it was like bright purple and bright green and bright pink. I think that maybe we had allowed youth to paint it at some point, which is like a nice idea. Um, and it's now our employment services office. And we have workers that are neurodiverse, mm-hmm. uh, as well as clients that are neurodiverse. And they were like, this office is, they used to call it the overstimulation station. Um, because like it was just like really hard to work in. Like they would keep the lights dimmed also because if you turn the lights on all the way, like it's too bright in there. Um, And I think with the way that employers and service providers are thinking now, we're now realizing that neurodiversity is something that exists in a larger part of the population than I think was originally assumed. And also back to our conversation earlier about like how oftentimes like the, the sorts of things that we do that, we might think of as like an accommodation for people with certain needs, actually helps everyone. It's also true that having environments that are low stimulus also help other people who like aren't who are neurotypical. Mm-hmm. It helps them acclimatize to the space. Like workers who don't struggle with overstimulation, also probably still work better in a space where it's like quieter and things are muted and and there's not too much noise and yeah
0: yeah i mean i don't find that uh, i i struggle with bright colors but definitely if if i'm in a space for a long period of time with bright lights and bright colors it, yeah. it can wear on you mentally
1: yeah yeah so it's like not really it's you know it's it has its times and places it's mm-hmm. great for it's great for this <laughs> exactly it's great for this it's great for the sweater i'm wearing it's great for like pride celebrations and yeah. the celebrations that we really scrape for queer prom and also if someone's like trying to get through a counseling session it might be a lot if every wall's painted a different color
0: right you want to be focused on the the conversation not the wall color yeah exactly mm-hmm. exactly Groundbreaking, I believe, is coming up in like a week or something like that, right? Maybe.
1: I think in in some technical way, it's like already happened and that like… The ground is literally broken. Broke, But, right. but yeah. <laughs> but the official, but the like, official like, ceremony this, type of situation. Yeah, where, like, the city makes an announcement mm-hmm. and we show up and we pose with a thing and make a speech that's coming up.
0: Look like a construction worker when you're not sort of thing. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly. <laughs> I always
0: think it's so funny. You see all, like, the politicians with their hard hats. But, oh, I know. Like, but, like, also, like, in This is the first time you've held a the suit shovel. <laughs> 100% <laughs>
1: yeah, for some exactly. of them, yes. It's the only time they've mm-hmm. had to hold a shovel. It's
0: pretty funny. And
1: it's, it's the only time that I hold a shovel, too. So, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> but exciting nonetheless. And yeah. Um I'm super I'm really interested excited. to see where this goes.
1: Yeah. I think it will open up a lot of possibilities for our programs. And also that what you're talking about of like making sure that we're filling gaps in services, having space, like having space at all, but like having space that fits needs allows us to be more adaptable. Um, and our programs and services have to be adaptable.
0: Right. And I, on that note, are there... Things that you're hoping that community will take on in the future that yeah. maybe the organization isn't currently planning on, but you, you just you would love to see happen?
1: Try and think of like things that I am allowed to talk about. <laughs> I mean, this one's kind of no secret in that we do talk about it. I think it's okay to talk about. As in, it's, like, it's okay for me to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been thinking about and trying to start up a legal clinic. Um and right now we're in sort of like the beginning stages of planning or the middle stages of planning, which is also the beginning stages of the thing.
0: It's kind of like Pivot in a in a way?
1: Um a little bit different. So like I funnily enough, my first one of my first nonprofit jobs was was Pivot Legal okay. Society. Um so Pivot, they serve um people by really like taking on usually choice cases. So they they do also like adjacently run. Um, Sort of like drop in legal clinics, I think like maybe once a month, Mm -hmm. where they help people navigate legal systems. But most of what they do is taking on particular legal cases that they hope or they believe um, or have good reason to think will be sort of like groundbreaking cases that will like set a precedent, a legal precedent or set a tone or set expectations in society uh, and create change from that legal system down by... So, like a a good example of something that we intervened on. That, but it's not a pivot legal society thing. But a case that we intervened on was about rights of um, a youth to to their gender identity um, and to having ac- like access to like medical care and certain things. Um, and we were an intervener on that case, meaning that we uh, spoke on on behalf of that youth, because that youth had accessed our programs, and we'd also s- spoken in support of that. And mm-hmm. um, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of that youth's rights, of their, their rights to their identity and their gender identity, and and to those rights being much the same as in an adult's. And so that would be an example of like something that is like a groundbreaking case where it sets the tone for all other cases like it. The idea of a clinic is that people who are just like facing discrimination in the workplace or... Trying to figure out like discrimination with respect to their housing and how to bring that to the residential tenancy board, Mm. how they individuals navigate that system. And so, what we hope to do is to provide services that are sometimes legal and sometimes like system navigational Mm. to help people navigate those systems that are supposed to be accessible and are freaking impossible to. Navigate by yourself.
0: I've had to navigate the RTB. I've had to navigate HRT, right? The Human Rights Tribunal. Yeah. And there's not a lot of information about how to do it. A lot of organizations will just say, I'm sorry, you know, we don't have the time or the capacity or whatever it is. These
1: systems always say, like, you don't really, you don't technically need a lawyer. And it's like, you kind Mm -hmm. of need, like,
0: some guidance. You need
1: some guidance. Mm -hmm. You need some serious guidance. And you need somebody that understands the needs of queer communities and queer people. Like one of the things that appeared in um, our community-based research on this of just like talking to people uh, in focus groups and we were like actually doing a a real research project um, was that people needed like queer family law like services. They needed lawyers that like understood what queer families looked like Mm -hmm. and that understood like what transness in a family looks like and that understood like the ways in which some concerns might appear in different way, like the, the ways that divorce might look, look different for people and that none of these things were being covered by like standard legal clinics that already exist. Um, and there isn't a queer legal clinic in BC. There isn't even one in Ontario. I sort of assumed there would be, but I was in a conference recently where somebody was like, and Ontario doesn't have a queer legal clinic yet. And I was like, oh my God. Um, I don't know if anyone in Canada... Does this? Talk and about a gap I, to fill. I suspect the answer is like, it doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, the way... Well, that's it's, amazing
0: that yeah. community is going to bring that to BC Yeah, hopefully.
1: Least. We're, I mean, no guarantees. We're think, thinki- but we're thinking, thinking of about we're, trying to. We're trying to. Trying to mm-hmm. and, and right now, it means like cobbling together the funding to do it.
0: That's and always the struggle, me. Right? That's the
1: struggle. We even have lawyers that are like, as soon as you have something up and running, like, tap me, I'm happy to like work for a bad pay for a lawyer. And I'm like, oh... What an offer.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I know some local lawyers that do that quite often, and they're absolute champions for offering services, either pro bono, low bono. Oh, yeah. yeah. One of them was even on our podcast.
1: Oh, nice. Um,
0: For anyone listening, that would be Barbara Finley on the Ageism podcast.
1: Barbara Finley is amazing. Absolutely. really looked to Barbara Finley for, like, the resources she provides. And, yeah,
0: yeah, she's a huge champion of queer rights.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely.
0: Before we start wrapping everything up, is there anything we haven't talked about? We've talked about a lot mm-hmm. of things, um, but That's is there anything true. that you wanted to bring up before we we start wrapping things up?
1: Like, I know that one of your natural wrap-ups is, like, how to support community. And that, I also, that'll be my next yeah, question, yeah. Yeah, and maybe this is just, like, a part, part of an answer to that, but I do want people to be thinking really critically about the ways in which they are like supporting queer people in their lives and supporting these conversations on like the correct side of the conversation at like dinner tables and things like that i think that like when we think about how we're going to move forward for coming battles um, when it comes to policy and legislation and the the ways that schools are thinking about like anti-soji work mm-hmm. and and for some reason embracing it and the way that we're seeing sort of like this like pendulum swing toward a more conservative government at all levels of government the way that we win those fights is by winning hearts and minds of people um and that means that we have to have these discussions and so if you're a person that's like listening and if you're queer think about the people in your lives that can be advocates and the allies, so that you're not always on the front line doing this work. Yeah.
0: I talk about this a lot. I think yeah. we've discussed this in other episodes, but there's so much pressure put on queer folks to put in the work of educating and yeah. you know, a- answering people's questions, yeah. and really having to take on a massive oh, mental yeah. strain. Like, and you're
1: just, like an organizer, an educator, an activist, a politician. Like, you do all of it, right? But we shouldn't all have to be like a jack-of-all-trades to...
0: Yeah, and I think a true yeah. ally isn't someone who just says, I support you and then stays silent. An ally is someone yeah. who champions the cause and, and does that education piece and hopefully is coming from a place of, of knowledge and understanding yeah. as well when they're doing that.
1: Yeah, like, think about, like, you know... Again, this will be, like, after the the anti um protests and the counter-protests, but, like, think about showing up for those kinds of things because that won't be the last of those i'm sure
0: uh yeah i mean Um, i hope it's the last but chances are
1: yeah i wish i wish i hope so i hope so too um but also think about like writing to politicians talking to like if you're a parent talking to other parents about this stuff Mm -hmm. um and talking to like your youth about these things whether or not your youth is actually queer because by having these conversations it tells your youth that like regardless of whether or not they're queer that you believe them you care about their identity and you care about their well-being and it's one of those things that like we we have to really start having these conversations in all spaces that we can't just have them in like queer spaces and social service spaces and around pride like we need to start making sure that um as a community and as allies and as a society at large we're we're thinking about like social demonstrations and demonstrations of kindness and care for Communities,
0: yeah. absolutely, and uh, you've mentioned some really great ways that allies can help support queer folks. What can our listeners do to support community specifically?
1: Totally great question. I love these kinds of questions. The, there's like an obvious answer. One of them is like, like give us funding. Like, and sometimes that's like five dollars, and sometimes that's like a thousand dollars. And all those those like bits of funding help us do the work we do. Um, it, it also makes sure that we are in a position that is stable and predictable, mm-hmm. um, and that's really important for a nonprofit to make sure that we're like able to pay people's wages to do the hard work. And are donations tax deductible? They are tax deductible. We are a registered charity. Fantastic. Um, so you get to like put tax dollars where you wish that they were going because you get that tax refund. Mm-hmm. Um, other things you can do, we do have volunteer opportunities that appear and that come up. Um, And so you can get in touch with us at volunteer at community.ca is a really- Highly
0: recommend that as a volunteer myself. It's a
1: wonderful thing to do. Um, And then other things like, I think that sometimes people don't realize the power that they hold. Like if you happen to like, I don't know, no like politicians or people in power. If you have the names of like funders or someone that- would be useful for us to know. In a time where we're kind of like fighting a war on all fronts to provide really basic services that are essential to people, sometimes being like making those introductions between someone like me, who's like a programs manager that's like trying to get things off the ground or trying to protect my colleagues and trying to protect the programs we run. Um, if you want to make those introductions, get in touch with us. You can find our contact on line so reception at community.ca or you can contact me directly and my email is on our website alex.deforge at community.ca and you just be like I heard the podcast and I know somebody who might be able to help with this thing or I thought of someone or like I happen to be in contact with someone who's on like the board of directors of this big company let me make that connection or I work in a social service that might be helpful to you as well um, I also welcome people who like work in adjacent things or who are like, I'm a librarian and I want to start like a drag story time at my library. How do I do that? And who can I be put in touch with? Mm-hmm. So um, any of those things that aren't always money and aren't always your time, um, those things are immensely helpful. Um, so feel free to get creative.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Burling. I've been joined by Alex DeForge today for a conversation about community programs. You've been listening to a social justice podcast, hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.